Hello. We want to thank you for joining our Living Messiah family by downloading this podcast. We hope it blesses you and enriches your life. We also want to encourage you, uh, if you can, and if your heart is so moved, to support this ministry by going on our website, livingmessiah.com, and donating to help us to put these podcasts in every nation, every place, so we can bring these messages to change lives, to help people grow in the Word of God. Once again, thank you so much for being part of our family. Shalom. Father, we thank you for the reading of your word. Open our eyes and our ears to the beautiful things that you're showing us today. Help us to learn about the lessons to be seen and learned today in, our, in this portion that we're reading. We glorify and praise you. In Master Yahushua's name we give thanks. Amen. Okay. Welcome to everyone online that's joining us. Welcome everybody here. We're glad that you're here. Welcome guests. Uh, So we want to learn together, and so, um, as I said, our portion is in chapter 12. Now, we're on a three-year cycle. We're not on the normal one-year cycle, so it's a triennial, and we like it because we get to take smaller chunks out of the Torah portions uh, and and really get in to dig into the smaller pieces. Sometimes the the yearly portions are really big, and uh, when we used to be on the cycle, it was, what do you, I mean, what do you cover? Then there was a New Testament portion and a prophet portion. It's like, Man, there's a lot to cover. So I think this, it worked real well for us. So what are we going to talk about today? So we're going to talk about some of the lessons that we see in this encounter that Miriam and uh, Aharon bring. And they, if you, you, you can see that there is the word that I'm going to hold down today is jealousy and envy. And so we have some lessons to learn about jealousy and envy. Uh, comparing ourselves with others, and those kinds of things. The other thing we're going to uh, hone in on at, towards the end is, by contrast, here you have Miriam and Aaron that are doing this envy, jealousy thing, and yet it says that Moses is the most humble guy there is. And so I think, you know, maybe Aaron and Miriam could have taken that approach if if they'd have just been a little bit more about what their brother was about. They could have avoided those things. We're going to dig into those things. Plus, we're going to read and we're going to touch in some of the words in our Torah portion and our prophet portion. All right. So, um, Isaiah 61.1 writes that it is to such that the anointed of the Lord is to preach the good news of salvation. The parallel here is the brokenhearted. They are conscious of divine approval and are confident that in the eschaton, Elohim will save them. It is interesting that the unleavened bread of Passover is called the bread of affliction, inasmuch as it constitutes a material reminder of sin, which is the ultimate, sometimes immediate cause of affliction. The bondage of sin, especially the hardship in Egypt and God's deliverance. I hope I have this in the right order. Numbers 12, verse 7. Not so with my servant Moshe. He is trustworthy in all of my house. I speak with him mouth to mouth, plainly, not in riddles, not in parables. And he sees the form. Why are you not afraid to speak against my servant? We're going to get into that word afraid here in a little bit. So anybody have any thoughts or comments about this passage? Any thoughts or comments? We've got a hand up over here.
Uh, I thought Moses only saw his back, not the like the entire form or like him. Wait, one more time. Uh, I thought Moses only saw his back, not just like him face to face. Yes, it says that in another portion that they saw his back, and so what portion that the Almighty allowed him to see is. I mean, people have been debating it for ages, but uh, I think that what he may be seeing is the physical manifest manifestation. Like it says, no one sees God and lives. Throughout Scripture, you'll see people say, we have seen God and have lived, but what they, I think they're really seeing is the Master, Yahushua, the, the physical manifestation of him. They're seeing that part of him. So that's my interpretation of it. And may not agree with everybody's, but that's what I see. Did that answer your question? Yeah. Okay. Anyone else have any thoughts about this portion? Mouth to mouth, not in riddle. Looks like, sure. Well, hold on. Wait, wait, wait for the mic to get to you. Face to face thing. Um, when Job was visited by God, he actually visited him physical men. Mm-hmm. came in house dinner with him yep and as they did with Moses, one, abraham had the three that yeah. came one's called yode vave but yet there's they're eating curds eating yes, meat and exactly. so and then joshua sees the man standing there with the sword exactly. and he says are you friend or foe and he says neither i am the lord of hosts and so but yeah I he mean, has come in many times in physical form to visit people not just in godly yeah yeah and i think to be able to eat the, like Abraham was serving and the men were eating. Obviously, there had to be a physical form here. I mean, the food wasn't just going in and hitting the ground. So uh, there had to have been a physical form there. But yet, the scripture clearly calls that man with Abraham, Yode Vafe, calls him, you know, the creator. So, yes. Uh, I just have a question of uh, when the Lord says he's trustworthy in all my house, and then we can see the my is captured. So I was curious about so it's interesting because we see these house of Judah, house of Ephraim, or house of Joseph. Um, sometimes we see uh, instances where it says the house of Benjamin showed up. And so it's talking about a, a tribe or a group of people, what's been designated as a group. So what is God's house? It's the assembly that he's called that have gathered. And we talked about this last week. What designates the assembly? the people that are coming and they're gathering at the appointed times. If you're gathering at the appointed times, you are the assembly. That's just, I mean, he says, these are my appointed times. These are the holy days that I'm asking you to gather. And he's waiting to see who shows up. So the ones that show up on those days have to be the assembly. They've got to be the called out ones. They're answering the call. They heard the, the trumpet. They heard the bell. They, they recognize who he is and they want to submit to those things. So I would say that's the house and Moses being faithful in that whole assembly, which probably at least 3 million people. So it's a, it's a big house to be faithful in all of the things, rendering judgments, um, seeking counsel. I mean, there's a lot that he had to be responsible for in the overseer of that house. Yes. Yeah, so um, what I get from this is, you know, I speak with him mouth to mouth. Um, Moses was doubtful that he could even use his mouth to speak. And God told him to shut up, right? He said, shut up, I'm going to use your mouth. So that's what 
He said, I'm going to use your mouth plainly and without riddles. And then he told him to go to Pharaoh and tell Pharaoh what he would have him to say. Yeah. So yeah. that's what I get from that. Good. Anyone else before we move on? All right. Verse 11. And Aharon said to Moshe, Oh, my master, please do not hold against us the sin in which we have done foolishly and in which we have sinned. Please do not let her be as one dead walking and coming out of his mother's womb with our flesh half consumed. I want to show you what the Targum says. It says, do not put on us the sin because we have become stupid and have sinned. Do not put on us the sin. So the word, the Hebrew word here for sin is the Hebrew word chatat. And it means, I want you to notice the last word is punish. Do not put on us the punishment that's associated. They're not wanting the leprosy. They're not wanting the punishment. That's what they're concerned about is she's turning white. He's afraid he's going to get white. Uh, he's calling it death, which, remember, death sentences couldn't be cured by just bringing an animal and a sacrifice. This was something he knew was, I can't, I can't do anything about it. I can't come to you and present an offering. I can't resolve this problem. So he's He's beseeching, but notice who he's beseeching. The one that he thought was equal with him, now he's beseeching the one he thought was equal. He's elevating Moshe and asking Moshe to beseech the Father for him. What a turn of being haughty to a lowly state just like that. Not a good place to be. Nobody wants to be in a place where they're... they're, they're <laughs> They're brought lowly because of their haughty demeanor. So this word sin, uh, chatat, uh, the most extensively used noun is the feminine, which and I, I put all of the, the words here about what this word is. You can see it is a, a noun, and it's a common feminine. So it says, in this feminine, which occurs almost 290 times, the noun in the feminine refers to the condition of sin, meaning what, what's coming. Don't bring this punishment. Don't bring the condition, what, what comes to mankind because of the sin. Don't put that on me, which in this case, it happened to be leprosy. So he, he doesn't want that condition. So in, in 31.36 and 50.17, it is paired with another word, pesha, Another common term for sin in Leviticus and in Numbers, the noun appears many times alternating in meaning between sin, the reality of disobedience to Elohim, and sin offering, the means of removing the guilt and penalty. I'll say that again. The sin offering, which is the means of removing the guilt and penalty of sin. But he knew that there was no way to do it. We've done something that it's death. It's a, it, her skin is dying. We can't do anything about it. And I need to, as David did, I need to petition the high court. I've got to go to the high court here. This court down here isn't going to do anything for me. I've got to go to the higher court, the supreme court. <laughs> the civil court's not going to do anything for me. I've got to go to the supreme court. And he's got to go before the Almighty through that. Uh, you can't go through the sacrificial system. So in this context, the noun 
is closely associated with uh, Asham, which is often translated, or Asham, as guilt offering. So why didn't he just slay an animal and repent? I guess I answered my question. Any comments or thoughts on this? Very interesting. Very interesting place here that, that, that Aaron and, and Miriam go into that is our lesson here is of, we're going to get into it a little later, the, the, there's, je- there's jealousy, there's envy going on. And I'm sure that none of us have ever had any of that in our life. There's, uh, but what we want to focus in on what they should have done, which is Moses' humility. So let's move on. Our prophet portion is Isaiah 59. And in verse 4 it says, There is none who prays in truth, and I'm reading from the Targum, and none who contests with one another in faithfulness. They trust in nothing and speak falsely. They hasten and bring out of their heart words that oppress. Now I like it that it uses this word oppression because God hates oppressors. He hates oppressors. And I want to tell you something. What Aaron and Miriam are doing to Moshe is oppression with the mouth. It's verbal oppression. God doesn't like it. And he hates it so much, he's so quick to react that Miriam is white, Aaron's trying to plead before he goes white, probably looking at himself as he's, as he's saying, please petition for me. It's a very serious thing for our words to bring about death to someone else. And because his words were intent to bring death to Moshe, God reversed it and brought death to them in the form of leprosy. Skin, the skin is dying. It's just dying and decaying and falling off. Can't be, the, the, the sages say it could never be, there was no healing outside of divine intervention. No way for it to be rectified outside of the Almighty's mercy. It's a pretty rough condition to get thrown on you. So this word oppress is the Hebrew word amal, and it's to labor, toil, trouble, mischief, sorrow, travail, pain, grievance, uh, grievousness, iniquity, miserable, and so on. As in the case of the verb, so that in the noun, it relates to the unpleasant factors of work and toil. A perusal or perusal of the varied synonyms used in the King James to render this word suggest its negative overtones. Such are the categories of grievance expressed by the noun. Moreover, these negative elements are amplified by words used in inundates and parallelism with some of these Hebrew words, torment and sorrow. Do you think that when somebody is verbally attacking somebody, that the person who's getting attacked is suffering torment and sorrow? How many of you had verbal attack? It's not fun, is it? It's, it's oppressive. It's torment. It brings sorrow on the person. And it's brought through provocation. It brings misery. It brings trouble, worthlessness, destruction, evil, and the like. You can see some of the references for some of those words that are brought forth through this oppression of Amal. Verse 6 in Isaiah 59. Behold, like webs of the spider of which it is not fit to be covered by them. So there is no profit in their wicked deeds. Miriam and Aaron had wicked deeds. They were saying things they shouldn't have said. It, it, they, had, they had let it come into their mind, and it had now taken root, and it was bearing forth 
in their deeds. But it started here in the heart and the mind. Their deeds are deeds of force and toil of falsehood is in their hands. Ooh, I like the way the Targum puts that stuff. Verse 8, they do not know the way of peace. There is no justice in their going. They have made their paths crooked, and none who treads in them knows peace. In other words, if you're treading in the path of crookedness, you do not know what peace is, period. You don't have a concept of peace if you're walking in the path of crookedness. Straight and narrow is the path of the righteous. But the crooked way, they're off to the left and the right, out of the straight and narrow. They veered off of the way as Ralphie got into a wonderful message that he had in the in-depth study. Veered off of the way. Titus 3.9 says, Avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and strife and disputes about the Torah, for they are unprofitable and worthless. Why? Because you've taken something that should bring peace and life and you're turning, turning it into oppression because you're now trying to make your way, your interpretation, the only way that anybody should see it. And that's wrong. You've turned it into what he says here, uh, controversies, strife, and disputes that don't bring anything but unprofitable and worthless talk. Do the Messianic and Hebrew roots people do that? I've watched it, seen it, been a victim of it. <laughs> What'd you say? <laughs> but you know what? Even though, let's just say Miriam and Aaron are really having a controversy and a, a, a strife about the law. Why? Because God Almighty has established Moshe as the leader of the house. And they're now having a controversy over what the God said, which is he laid down the law. Moses is going to lead the children. And they're having a controversy over it. And it's bringing forth strife and disputes that carried out into others. Because they heard Miriam and Aaron doing it. It's interesting that the adversary knows where to attack. He knows where to go here. He knows. And he's going to start at the top so that it'll work its way down in the camp and make its way to other people and everybody else. Well, Miriam and Aaron said it. So, I mean, Aaron, you know, Aaron, he's carrying the staff. I mean, he's the priest. I mean, he's the one we bring the offering to. He's the one that makes it. It's got to be right. We've got to be careful what we're hearing, what we're watching on YouTube, the things that we, that if it doesn't line up with the word, boot it out. Mike. I wonder if uh, Moses was even aware that they were talking behind his back because it, it says uh, Yahuwah suddenly called the three of them. So maybe he, they probably knew what was up, Miriam and I heard Aaron, some, but maybe Moses, he's like, why, what's going on? I read some commentaries that said that Moses did know, but it didn't bother him, which is pretty amazing because, you know, uh, I mean, it's, it is oppression, and it, it would be, should be a, a, oppressive and burdensome to know that, man, I'm standing in front of this great assembly of the Almighty, 
and the two that are right under me, they're they're contending with one another. This doesn't look bad, good for me, or what's going on here from from this Levite camp? Yes. Yeah, I guess there's a lot of questions because who's the wife? Is it is this Zipporah or is this some other wife? Questions like that. But they they ask the question: uh, Is he only spoken through Moses? Moses hasn't yeah. he spoken through us also? Yeah. Which actually is true. Yahuwah did had does speak through them absolutely, but not to the you know Moses was definitely and the Miriam head was guy. called a prophetess. Yeah. So obviously she she had given prophecy. She had God had spoken through her, but it's whenever again it's there's there's something going on because they could tell even though he's the high priest and she knows she's a prophetess, they know that there's something different between them and Yahuwah and him and Yahuwah. There's there's a little different, and they're not liking it. And a little bit of this envy and jealousy has crept in, and it's just a human condition of, of, of what the, the adversary brings in to all of us through the flesh. And we've got to recognize it, and we've got to say, I'm going to, I'm going to come against it. I'm going to take those thoughts captive, and it ain't going to reside in this house. It's going to be done. Okay. Going on in verse 16 in the Targum of Isaiah 59. And it was revealed before him that there was no man whose deeds were good. Pause there for a minute. Read Matthew nineteen sixteen. And someone came to him and said, Teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may obtain eternal life? And he said to him, Why are you asking me about what is good? There is only one who is good. So he's, he's confirming what's being said here through the prophet, which is him saying it there again, that there is only one good. And he says, but if you wish to enter into life, believe in me, Jesus Christ. Is that what it says? Keep the commandment. As a matter of fact, this is a teacher, and later it says a, a lawgiver comes in and asks him the same thing, and he gives the same answer. What must I do to obtain eternal life? Keep the commandments. If you want to enter, enter into life, keep the commandments. Interesting. And it was known before him that there was no man who would stand and petition on behalf of them. So by his strong arm, Yahushua, he redeemed them. And by the memra which, with which he, has, he was pleased, he helped them. In other words, how did he redeem them? Through the word. What helped them? The word, which is the strong arm. The word and the strong arm, that's what helped the people. Now, Miriam and Aaron could have had that help if they would have listened to the word, but you know what? They were listening to something else. They had headphones on, and the headphones weren't the word. The headphones were <laughs> something else playing in tune. Somebody should have slapped those headphones off. Verse 17, then he will be revealed. He will be revealed to perform merits for his people. Exactly what Yeshua did. The word, the memory was revealed and he performed merits. He performed good works that he told John, you're asking if I'm him? Just look at the deeds. The works, the merits that I'm doing should tell you who I am. To bring strength and deliverance by his memory, his word, to those who fear him. And we did this study. Remember, I pulled out and showed you that all these places in the scriptures where it says the fear of the Lord is always in context of keeping the commandments. So to fear the Lord is keeping the commandments. Those who are walking the straight path, 
those who are walking on the way. Rafi brought out in the in-depth study, it's the way. That's the way. The way is, what's the lamp lighting? It's the way, the path. To exact retribution and strength from the enemies of his people and to return vengeance to his enemies. He is the master of recompenses. Oh, I love that. He will repay recompense. Vengeance to his adversaries, retribution to his enemies. To the islands, he will pay recompense. But they will fear the name of Yahuwah from the west. From where? We're called the what? We're called the west. They will fear the name of Yahuwah from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun. For they will come like the overflowing of the river Euphrates. How, they, how will they come? By what will they come? By the memra, by the word of Yahuwah, they will be plundered. Ooh. Love it. Verse 16, and we're going to reiterate this. He saw that there was no man, and he wondered. This word wondered is shamem, and this term occurs 90 times and means made desolate or to destroy or be appalled or overwhelmed with dismay or terror. On the 20 or so occasions when shamem means appalled or overwhelmed, there is the strong probability that astonishment or amazement is linked with these reactions. In the main, the references describe the dismay and astonishment surrounding the catastrophe of divine judgment against both Israel and the nations. So he's in amazement. He's overwhelmed that there was no one to intercede. Wow. So in most cases, the term is translated appalled. The dismay of Israel's own reaction to God's anger towards them. They're, they're just, I can't believe he's, he's punishing us. <laughs> Ezekiel and Daniel's response to divine revelation concerning Israel's fate is significant in this regard. The nations are depicted as being horrified and amazed not only at Israel's punishment, but also the fate of countries such as Edom, Babylon, here. The word also refers to God's dismay at Israel's sin and Israel's horror at the fate of the suffering servant. Wow. I love clarity on words. Verse 20, and he says, A redeemer, a relative, will come from Zion, even to turn back the rebels of the house of Jacob to the Torah, says Yahuwah. I mean, what is the goal of any messenger that God sends? It's to send to take the rebels. Yeshua said, I didn't come for the righteous. I didn't come for the healthy. I'm coming for the people that are rebels to turn them back to the Torah. I'm bringing them back to the way. I'm getting them to repent. John brought the message of repentance, and I'm lighting the path of righteousness for them to come in. But it's a relative. A redeemer. So this word relative, redeemer, is not the word goel that we normally sing for redeemer. It's the word gaal. And this term occurs 100, and ni- uh, 100 times. It is utilized as a verb with the sense of redeem in about half of these contexts. However, in its participle form, goel, it is translated nominally as a redeemer, a kinsman or a kinsman redeemer, 
on about 10 occasions. These terms carry significant theological weight in reference to both God and human beings. The meaning kinsman or relative is, is a general sense is indic indicated in Numbers 5.8. So, is it important that Yeshua had to be a relative? Because you can be a redeemer, but we're talking a relative who's a redeemer. Yes. And Ward had a good thought on that uh, earlier. Go ahead. Uh, yeah, just speaking on all of this as him coming to be the redeemer to turn back rebels to the house of Jacob. <laughs> it's so sweet because we can even see he's just bringing us back to our duty because in Ecclesiastes twelve thirteen it says, let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments for this, the whole duty of man. Yes. So right there, that's just something I just wanted to Beautiful. share with everybody. I mean, the redeemer comes to turn the rebels back to the Torah. And you know what's interesting? By us accepting Yeshua, by being grafted and adopted, he's our relative. He's our relative. He becomes this to us, and guess what the result was? We've all come to the Torah. And guess what's going to happen to many millions others? They're going to come to the Torah. Because the relative is going to show them who he is. The relative is going to show them what his purpose is. The relative is going to show them what life everlasting is. And like they, he said to the teacher, you want life eternal? Go to the Torah. Run to the Torah. Put the Torah on as a garment, like garments of salvation. I want to read this to you. The name Yorevave actually occurs about 180 times throughout the book of Genesis. Prior to Exodus 3.14 and Exodus 6.3, informs the reader that God has appeared to Abraham and his descendants by the name God Almighty, El Shaddai but had not made himself known to them as Yorevafe. The uniqueness of God's revelation to Moses lay not in the mere knowledge or articulation of the name Yorevafe, but rather, I'm going to say that again, it's worth saying again. The uniqueness of God's revelation to Moses lay not in the mere knowledge or articulation of the name Yorevafe, but rather in the divinely given insight of that name is ever present, all powerful, that he is the redeemer of his people and the one who keeps his solemn promises, his pledges under oath to the covenant. That's the meaning of who he is. That's what we have to focus on. Moses wasn't running around, are you pronouncing it right? Do you have it right? Are you saying it right? You know what I'm saying? Moses was like, are you, are you turning your heart to him? Are you keeping the covenant? He's going to be faithful to his promise. He's going to redeem us. He's going to bring us in. That's the redeemer I know. That's some weighty stuff there. What about this word rebel? Turn the rebels back to the Torah. It's this word pesha or pasha. And it means to transgress or revolt. So the fundamental idea of the root is a breach of relationship. How many of you have been part of a breach of a relationship? Could be at work. 
Could be a family member. Could be a friend. Maybe you got, what's the word with Facebook? You got be, befriended. Is that what? Unfriended. I'm not, a, I don't have Facebook, so I, I, I figured I'd get there. You got unfriended. That was a breach in relationship, was it not? As that them saying, I don't want to you hear no more, no more, no more. <laughs> they breach in relationship, civil or religious, between two parties. And as far as he is concerned, there are two ways the rebellion may be ended. It may end with punishment or a renewal of the relationship. <laughs> Which do you want? One of these or one of these? Which are you going to get? Aquarius has got two vials that's coming. Are you going to get the punishment or are you going to get the renewal of the relationship and the blessing? Which one are you going to get? That's how this is restored. That's why he said, I've got to have someone prepare the way. John had to go and prepare the way to get them to say, here is the way to come. Because if you don't take that route, you're going to get the punishment. Because I'm going to send a person called Nero, and it ain't going to be good for all you folks that just aren't going to repent. It's going to go bad for you. He's going to come and he's going to destroy this place. Lay it low. Some key passages with this theme are Job, Micah. Through his servants, God warns his people of, the, of their danger. Amos, Psalms, and takes pains the, de, uh, the designate their transgression and the cause for their punishment. Again, we're talking punishment. Don't put this punishment on me. Pray, pray Moshe that they don't put this, he doesn't put this punishment on me. The references given above on the character of Elohim indicate that Elohim wants to pursue a different course of action. He wants to save his people. I must tell you, I really did not like the disciplining of my children or any, anyone, even, even when I was in a, a uh, position of manager over people. I did not like doing those things. It was, it was grievous to me. It really was. I thought every possible way I could to get around it, but Inevitably, sometimes it, it has to happen. It must come. And it's terrible. And the Almighty's crying out. He's, he's wanting the path of the two paths to be the one of repentance. He doesn't want the, the punishment. So, in the ceremonies of the Day of Atonement, he provided a scapegoat. And in Isaiah 53, 8, promised redemption through the suffering servant. Through his servants, he promised forgiveness. And Elohim also makes man's role of choice clear. May we pursue peace and repentance and not receive punishment and a scolding. Because when God scolds, you all know, I used to tell my kids, be glad that it's me doing the punishment. Because when you get out on your own, when God gets a hold of you, it's, it's way worse. It's way worse. They're like, how? And I said, well, financial poverty would be one of them. Your physical health would be another. It's terrible, yes. I just keep thinking I'm sitting here listening to Ralphie and then sitting listening to you do this, and I keep thinking, like, if there was a word for today to think about and contemplate, it would be the word surrender. 
Yes. Because you're not going to turn back if you're not going to surrender. That's right. You're not going to obey if you're not going to surrender your will, your way, your mind, yes. your actions, the whole thing. The I mission. mean, that is like Moses was fully surrendered. Yes. That's the difference. Yep, that's exactly right. Well, well said. Good point. Yes. There when it says God also makes man's role a choice clear, it reminds me of that um, he... We have a choice. He doesn't force us. And it's up to us to choose the right path, the right choice. Amen to that. And it's just, I just think that that's amazing now. He just doesn't force his love on. He chooses us, but we need to choose him. Amen. Make the right choice. Okay, go ahead. Just curious, is this... um before or after, who's the rebellion that rose up against Moses? And you know, so, yeah, now we're in we're in uh, Isaiah fifty nine. So this is way after the whole Exodus thing. So this the the rebels have been going on. Oh no, I'm sorry, I meant with Miriam and Aharon. Was it after what? Was it before or after the rebellion of the people who rose up against? Moses? Well, there, there was a a rebellion just before this about the the meat and stuff, but the one for Korah, I'm pretty sure, yeah. is, is is coming. Okay. Is to come. Yeah. What's crazy is, I mean, they all saw what happened. I mean, it's not like they didn't know what was going on. So all these examples didn't change a thing. Example after example after example. I mean, like, when are my kids going to get it? I'm just, I'm just constantly spanking their tail, and they just aren't getting it. Yes. Just to add with what Nicola said about surrender, because you will not surrender if you don't, you're not humble. And what yes. Aaron and yes. Miriam did is opposite of what God's description of Moshe, which is the meekest man on earth. So we need humility. Good word. We're going to talk about that here at the, towards the end. Okay. So before God actually grants his pardon, man is called upon to act with a warning attached and that man must personally repudiate his rebellion and the idolatry that was an integral part of it. An examination of several prayers of supplication reveals that one who prays does indicate awareness of sin and does engage in confession of the sin. Yet it is clear that human effort cannot bring salvation to those prayers also exhibit an earnest plea for Elohim to act. Best of all, testimonies are recorded that Elohim did indeed pardon and redeem his people in several instances here. And so I wanted to show you the Greek word for this rebel, and it means a want of reverence toward God, impiety, ungodliness. Ooh. So the plural word, ungodly thoughts and deeds. Now people would say, well, he's only concerned about my deeds. It's, it's my ungodly deeds. No, no, no. It's those thoughts too. Those thoughts that come into the mind and you let it roll. And you, you, ooh, that sounded good. Let's replay it. I'm going to back. I'm going to reverse and hit it over again. That was so good. Revert, hit rewind and go back and let's replay that. That was good. And I'll bet some of you replay that. You replayed it 10 years ago and you're replaying it again today. 10 years have transpired between you replayed that and hit rewind that thought and you hit it again. That was so good, I'm going to hit it again. Hmm. May it never be. May we turn from those things and have a Create in me a clean heart and renew a right spirit within me. May that be what happens for all of us. 59.18 says, 
according to their deeds, so he will repay. Wrath to his adversaries, repayment to his enemies. So he is called Yahuwah of recompense, Yahuwah Gamula. So because of his perfect, absolute righteousness, God is also called by the two names that speak of his judgment upon unrighteousness. Why? Because he made a promise. He made an oath. If you don't do this, I'm required to do this. And I must keep my word. I must do what I said that I would do. We find the first, for example, in Jeremiah 51, 56, where he is called Yahuwah Gamula. The prophet foretells that the prophet foretells that God will come upon Babylon and her mighty men are taken. Every one of their bows are broken. For Yahuwah Elohim of recompense shall surely requit. The Hebrew gamula, a derivative of gamal, to deal, to recompense, to ripen, speaks of a full repayment for what is deserved. You think he's going to give the people just a portion? No, he's going to, it's full, full wrath. They're going to get every bit of what they deserve. Just like he said, the land is going to lay desolate. It's going to make up all of the times that it didn't receive its rest. He's going to give it exactly what it deserves. There are many instances of this word and other derivatives that speak of recompense, both of judgment and blessing. Used positively, for example, when David was fleeing from Absalom, Barzaliah provided him with supplies. And David returned the favor. It is even used to speak of benefits God has given. At times, the positive and the negative are actually contrasted, as in the virtuous woman, who will do, gamal, him, her husband, good and not evil all the days of her life. She will do him good and not evil all the days of her life. That's the virtuous woman. So it is the negative, however, that is truly sobering. Let's think of Miriam and Aaron's pride here. The instance here in our text speaks of God's retribution on his enemies, as does Isaiah. Why, is it, why would they be considered an enemy of God here? Because what does the scripture say? If you speak against my anointed, you've spoken against me. You've now spoken against God Almighty. You thought you were speaking against this person, but God put that person in authority and place. And you're speaking against him because who puts everyone in power and authority? God does. Who brings them out? He does. The psalmist calls upon this God of recompense to give the wicked according to their deeds and according to the wickedness of their endeavors. Give them after the work of their hands. Render them their dessert. Gamul. We cannot help but make special note of Psalm 94. Lift up thyself, thou judge of the earth. Render a reward, gamul, to the proud. Pride is never used in a positive way of a man in Scripture. Here we read of, in fact, it's costliness. God will recompense it, judging it as harshly as he did the Babylonians. How this should show us what a serious sin pride is. Mm. So I'm going back for a minute to our Numbers portion, Numbers 12.6, and he says, Hear now my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, Yahuwah, shall make myself known to him in a vision. The word here is mare. Sight, vision, appearance, countenance, beauty. 
a name for the, our word uh, Nabi, prophet, and seer, suggesting that the act of seeing God's message by dreams or visions was so important that the spokesman might be called one who sees divine things. That is a seer. And at least seven other times in the Tanakh, this feature placed certain limits on prophetic communication about the future and prophetic inter interpretation as God was careful to point out and as the prophets regretfully acknowledged. The vision often needed further interpretation. Special meaning with reference to biblical prophecy. There is nearly identical noun, marah, distinguished from mare, only by the second vowel. This related word is used almost exclusively for visions as a vehicle of divine revelation to prophets. The words alternate in this obvious sense in Ezekiel and Daniel. Dream seems to designate the sleeping state of prophetic receptivity and vision, the individual segment within the dream. Daniel 7, for example, speaks of a dream in which there are several visions of his head upon his bed. Herein lies a crucial truth. When many today see the word vision, they immediately interpret this to mean seeking God through dreams and other such revelations. But the only place God has revealed himself is in his word. The only vision that we need is what God has revealed in Scripture. It is that alone that we need to see and seek what God has said, what he has given us. If we seek that and he wants to give you something else, guess what he'll do? He'll knock on your door while you're asleep. And he'll give you something else. But we need to be seeking what he's already said. Knock and it shall be opened. Yes. Yes, amen. But I had a question. So does that mean if God has given you like dreams and visions, like props? Not necessarily, no. Because number one, any dream or vision that is from him, guess what has to happen? Well, two things. It can't contradict any of the things he's already said, number one. And number two, it's got to come true. And there are prophets all over the YouTube that have prophesied things. It didn't come true. And guess what people are doing? They're still listening to that. And it's very clear that we should not listen to that person again. They've proven themselves to be a false prophet. This is why it's very clear that unless you've got something you know for a fact is from God, you better keep it to yourself. Better be careful. The handling the words of God and says, can you imagine people going around, going around saying, thus says the Lord, and it wasn't him that spoke. Very bad thing, yes. Yeah, back to what you were saying about YouTube, right? There's a lot of people who will be like, God spoke to me in a dream last night, and this is what it is, and it's a 10-minute video, and you can clearly see that whatever these people have been convicted and move to do this regardless of its bad intention or if they truly believe that they saw that or whatever it might be, how would you be able to challenge that? Would you have to see if that person's a follower of Torah or? Well, I would say, uh, do you believe that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever? Do you believe his, God, his word is everlasting? Okay. Well, I would say what you said is contradicting what he said here. This actually happened to me. I wanna share this story with you. So I had a, a friend of mine that uh, co-worker, um, co-worker, we're riding together to work. And he happens to see me in my office reading at lunchtime the Bible. I'm reading and studying, right? 
And he says, hey, can I come in and read with you? I said, sure. It just happened to be we were reading about uh, Leviticus 11, about the dietary laws. And uh, so he says, yeah, I says, I, he says, I'm reading it. And he says, yeah, I, I agree with all that stuff. Yeah, that's all, that's all good. And I happened to jump over to talking about the prophet, that if a prophet speaks contrary to what God says, he's a false prophet, that God will never go against what he says, right? And he says, yeah, I completely agree with all that. He asked me after the study, he said, would it be all right with you? He happened to be LDS. He said, would it be all right with you if I bring one of my scriptures to read in the car while you're driving, if I can read it to you in the car? I said, you know what? I said, you can do that. I said, but the, the second that something contradicts what God has already said, I'm going to ask you to close the book. He said, oh, it'll never contradict. So we're driving along, and he pulls it out. In the first five minutes, He's reading, and it said, the, the, the prophet said, all things are clean. And I said, stop. I, I mean, I, I couldn't have set this up. We just read Leviticus 11. And I said, stop. And he says, what's the matter? And I said, well, the prophet just contradicted what God said. He said, what do you mean? I said, well, he, your prophet just said that all things are clean. Everything we eat, pork, everything. But you and I read yesterday in Leviticus 11 that God said that it is unclean and unfit for consumption. And you agreed with it. I said, so... We both read what the prophet, he must be accurate and not contradict God. Your guy just contradicted what the Most High said. He slammed the book shut, leaned his head back on the headrest, and didn't say another word. You know why? Because we read what God said, and there was no argument. Now, did he, did he turn around? No, but what could he say? It was like God set the whole thing up. I didn't do it. God set the whole thing up for a, a testimony and a witness that, I'm just saying, hey, he's clearly spoken against God, and he, he, there was no comeback because he had already read it. So we got two hands, yes. Um, with what you're saying and what you said before, life and death is in the power of the tongue, and what you just described was right there in plain sight for you. Yep. He was speaking the death, right? And you had to shut it up with the life the same way that God told Moses to shut up right so you good had to point. shut them up yeah that's, that's right so um get yeah. that death out of here you got to get the death out of here with that um we have to change our minds we got to be renewed Amen. in the spirit of our minds because yes. our mind brings out what we speak yep and the things that we speak can bring death to us amen well said another hand yes Scripture says, um, beware of wizards that peep in the night to the law and to the testimony. If they speak not according to this word, <laughs> there's no light in them. <laughs> it's only death, isn't it? So Miriam and Aaron weren't speaking according to the Torah and the testimony. They were speaking death. And only the punishment speaking death, leprosy. Okay. So the use of jealous is intended to emphasize that God will not tolerate a divided loyalty. He alone deserves honor as the one true Elohim, not just lip service, but life submission. Just what you said, submission. How are you doing today? Are you destroying the idols in your life? They seem to have a way of rising from the dead, so to speak, and they take on forms and names that sound so acceptable. John ends his first great epistle with the words, little children. Guard, and this word guard is the eros imperative, meaning do this now. Guard yourselves from idols now. Don't delay, don't wait, do it now. Yes. I just have to know, did he ever ride with you again? 
Say again? Did he ever ride with you again? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yes. We're still friends. So, yeah. we commu- I just talked to him just the other day. Yeah, he is. So, Numbers 12.8 says, Why then are you not afraid to speak against my servant? Afraid is yare, to revere, be afraid. In this discussion, biblical usages of yare are divided into five general categories. The emotion of fear, the intellectual anticipation of evil without emphasis on the emotional reaction, reverence of awe, righteous behavior or piety, and formal religious worship. The Greek word means to criminate, to incriminate, to speak against. So we have had some good evidence so far as to what is going on in our portion. It's envy. It's jealousy. So watch this. Romans 129. Being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice, they are gossip. The word envy is this Greek word, which means to envy someone. And so I want to bring this notion to you. Did you know that there's two forms of jealousy? So what's going on here in our portion? There's a righteous jealousy which Phinehas did whenever the two came running into the camp and he put the spear between them, or through them. And there's a unrighteous jealousy based on these two Hebrew words. So my question is, which one are you guilty of doing? May we be the people that have righteous jealousy and not the jealousy that brings punishment. Can I hear an amen? So I'm going to briefly touch on this kana. And this kana is the adjectival form derived from the verbal root kana and is translated jealous in each of the six contexts it is found. The term refers only to God as being jealous, indicating the divine determination to tolerate from his people no respect for worship of any other deity besides himself. He's not going to tolerate any worship of anything else but him alone. Not going to tolerate it. That's divine jealousy, right? This is why Phineas realized they're doing something here that <laughs> I'm going to come again. This is, this is in a holy place, and they're doing the unthinkable in the holy place. Yes. I'm not so keen to use a mic. It's okay. I can I can bring you can bring it up to me after. It's all right. All right. So I want to move through this because I've got just a couple more slides to, to hit. No other deity besides himself. It also signifies the fierce determination of Elohim to tolerate no rival whatsoever. Thus every single occurrence of this term is found in the context of a prohibition against idol worship. Proverbs 6.34 For jealousy is the rage of a man, and he will not have compassion in the day of retribution. Proverbs 14.30 He who diminishes rage is a healer of his flesh, and like the boring worm in wood, so is jealousy in the bones. Ouch! Jealousy is like the boring worm in wood. But he who diminishes rage is a healer of the flesh. Wow. 
Song 8.6, the house of Israel will say on that day to their master, if it please you, place us as a imprint of a signet ring upon your heart, as an imprint of a signet ring upon your arm, so that we will no longer be exiled. For, we, for the love of your divinity is as strong as death, and the jealousy of the nations who make you jealous is as strong as Gehenna. And the enmity that they harbor against you is like coals of fire of Gehenna, which Yahuwah created on the second day for an eternal covenant in which to burn those who practice foreign worship. That's from the Targum. Oh, man. He created it on the second day to reserve for those who deserve divine punishment. Man, don't want any part of that. I'm going to skip this here, and I'm going to come to here, because we're getting close on time. Numbers 12.3 says this. Here's the reversal. The man Moses was humble, anah. Humble, meek. This adjective stresses the moral and spiritual condition of the godly as the goal of affliction, implying that this state is joined with a suffering life rather than one that is a worldly happiness and abundance. You say, well, you mean Moses was was in this place of of affliction? Yeah. I mean, he said, I he told his father-in-law, I can't endure all of this. I mean, it's, I'm, I'm having a judge, and they come up with a plan to bring up these other people to help him judge the nation. He was afflicted. He's suffering because he's having to bear the burden and the weight of all the people. It's a heavy deal. If you've ever been in a place of management and you've got a lot of people that you're responsible for, it's a heavy weight. I've got 14 people in my house. It's not, not easy. It's a blessing. But there is weight with that responsibility. Raphael knows that, doesn't he? <laughs> so it's a heavy deal. Our word, humble, expresses the intended outcome of affliction. Humility. Moses' description of himself in Numbers 12.3, as such a man, is no proud boast, but merely a report of his position. Absolute dependence upon Elohim. Like Paul's statement in Acts 20. Throughout the rest of Scripture, such an attitude and position is lauded as blessed and to be desired. This is the goal which God intended when he afflicted his people and toward which they are to endure affliction. God, God's desires when he brings affliction to you to bring you into a humble state, to bring you into that lowly state. Why? So that you realize, I'm done. I need God. Forgive me. I, 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 I'm, I'm, I'm worthless. I need you most high. The humble consider and experience God as their deliverer, receiving grace from him. They rejoice when God is praised. They seek God and keep his ordinances. They wait on him and are guided by him. As such, they are commended as being better than the proud. They are contrasted with the wicked and the scorners. That's what I want to be. I want to be those things. I don't want to be the one that's bearing the death sentence in the flesh. Seven biblical ways to avoid the comparison trap. One, fix your eyes on Elohim and not others or yourself. Two, recognize His grace in your life and get out of that entitlement mentality. Three, 
Be grateful for what you do have and what God has given you. Four, rejoice when he blesses others. Five, try to see others' needs and bless them. I'm going to say it again. Try to see other people's needs and bless them. Six, don't turn the thing you desire into an idol. And seven, find your identity in Messiah, not in what you do or what you are. Find out what you're to be and do in him. Would you stand with me? God kept his promise to bless Isaac. The neighboring Philistines grew jealous because everything Isaac did seemed to go right. So they filled his wells with dirt and tried to get rid of him. Jealousy is a dividing force strong enough to tear apart the mightiest of nations or the closest of friends. It forces you to separate yourself from what you were longing for in the first place. When you find yourself becoming jealous of others, Try thanking God for their good fortune before striking out in anger. Consider what you could lose. A friend, a job, a spouse, eternity. Father, we thank you for the lessons today that you're showing us about being humble and about jealousy and envy. We thank you for showing us this whole picture of what happened between Moses and his siblings. Father, we ask that you help us with your spirit to, to overcome these things, to be overcomers so that we rise up and that your love, that your, uh, uh, your word is imparted in us and that that's what guides us in our thoughts, in our hearts, in our deeds, that your word and your spirit, it, it directs us. And it's not the flesh, it's not the, the headphones that are speaking into us, the things of the world. We pray that it is you alone that guides us. Help us, Master. You said that your memory is the word that will help us. Help us with your word. Sanctify us with your word. Cause us to rise up, Father, in your righteousness by your word and your spirit. We glorify you and praise you because you are the one doing the work in each of us. We magnify you in Yahushua's name. Amen. Now we get to say Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. Thank you, everyone online, for joining us. Thank you, everybody here. Have a blessed rest of your Shabbat. And remember, guests go first through our food line. So guests go first. So thank you for being part with us today. Shabbat Shalom.